0: I will tell you right now I greatly, greatly, greatly underestimated how long it takes to drive to Baltimore. (laughs) When Randy and I flew up there in April, I was like, oh, yeah. You jump on Google Maps, oh, yeah. You put 35 people in six cars and have to drive it. And just so you know, I found this out the hard way the other day, Um, there is nothing, nothing between Henderson, North Carolina and Petersburg, Virginia on Interstate 85. Now, I'm not going to give you all the details of the story, but um, in 2006, I drove that in the middle of the night one time, driving from Raleigh to Richmond and back in the middle of the night. That's another story for another sermon for another day. But it's nighttime. I mean, I left Wake Forest, North Carolina at 10.30. I didn't expect to see anything. But oh my goodness, when it is dinner time, and you've got 34 hungry people with you and you're trying to figure out where you're gonna eat and there is nothing for 69 miles Wow. All in all, 35 people stepped out this week and did what God put before them and were able to leave a blessing in two different communities at two different churches serving in two different ways. And I want to thank you. Uh, I want to thank you as your pastor. I want to thank you as your friend. I want to thank you as one that got to benefit from, from this trip. Uh, There's a whole lot more that we could do. There's a whole lot more that we we, we could see done. But what we were able to do... uh, Our church provided a bicycle for a family this week. It was part of uh, what was the drawing point in a raffle or a giveaway through Restoration Church at the block party. And it wasn't somebody we gave a flyer to. It was something that somebody uh, that was in our group saw a couple of ladies walking. They had a kid. Hey, we're having a block party. Come on over here. And they came and they registered. And, and I kind of felt bad for the, there was one little boy that, uh, I mean, he was fixed that he was going to get that bicycle. He talked to about everybody with our group. Like, what are you going to draw? Because that's going to be my bike. And when you pull that card and when it says Z I O-N, I'm going to ride that bicycle home. That's what I'm going to do. I heard him tell at least three different people that exact same thing. But I saw him talking to a bunch of other people. And at that time, he had a pretty good option of winning because there were only three people that had put a card in the box to to register for the bike. But it was good to see our church serve. Today, we're going to be looking in Genesis 46 and 47 at a time that has nothing to do with Baltimore, and a passage that has nothing to do with Baltimore. Baltimore. It has everything to do with what happens when God's people obey him. What happens when God puts something in front of us and we say, okay, we're gonna do that because Lord, that's what you have said. That's what you have called. And it comes down to this nice family reunion that takes place in Egypt. It, it comes down to what God's doing in Israel and what God is doing in Joseph and bringing them back together. Now, if you haven't been with us and you're unfamiliar with the story, here's what's happened, let me catch you up. Um, Israel, is, his name was Jacob when he was born. He was the younger son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. He has inherited the promise of God that through him the world would be blessed. A- Israel has 12 sons. Uh, the, the next to youngest son, Joseph, um, is the favorite son. He gets the favorite, he gets the multicolored robe. He's having these dreams that his brothers and his parents, everybody's gonna bow down to him and he's gonna be in charge of things. And his brothers don't like it, so they sell him to slavery. He ends up uh, serving in the house of Potiphar. God blesses him, he prospers. Potiphar's wife accuses him of something he did not do. So he gets thrown into jail. Uh, in jail, uh, he's trying to figure out why God has him there. And a couple of guys there that served, used to serve Pharaoh, they have dreams. He interprets the dreams. They get out of jail. One goes to die because that was his dream. He was going to die. The other gets back to go back to Pharaoh's house to serve where he was. And Joseph says, remember him. But he did remember him until Pharaoh had a dream. And now Pharaoh has had a dream. And Joseph interprets the dream and establishes a plan by which Egypt can be saved through a famine. But it's in this famine that Israel, the promised community of God, The chosen family is now suffering because of famine. And Israel sends 10 of his sons down to get grain because there was grain in Egypt because of Joseph, because of God's hand on Joseph. And they come back with grain and have their money, but one of their sons had to stay in jail. And now they've all gone back to get more grain. And Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers as, I am your brother, Joseph. What you intended for me, for evil, God sent me here to preserve life for you. Go get my dad and bring him here. I want to see my dad. Now, that's the short end of the story, but this is where we are. It says there in chapter 46, verse 1, so Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifice to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob answered saying, here I am. And God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. And Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, and his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters, his granddaughters, and all his descendants that he brought with him to Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're in control. We thank you that you are in charge of the events of the world and that things do not escape your hand, your notice, your watch. Lord, we thank you that when you call us to do something, you don't leave us behind. You give us strength. You provide our needs when we follow you. Show us today how we can honor you in ways that stretch our imagination, in ways that stretch our abilities. For Lord, that's where we see your great and mighty hand doing what we can't do. Lord, we love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. These next couple of chapters that we're looking at, chapter 46 and chapter 47, bring a father and a son together. Now, Jacob thinks that his son Joseph is dead. I left that out of the synopsis a minute ago, didn't I? When his brothers sold him into slavery, they took his, clo- they took his cloak, covered it in, in the blood of an animal and took it to dad and said, can you identify this? We think our brother's been torn to shreds by some wild beast. So he is grieved of heart because he thinks his son, the chosen one, the favored son has been killed. He thinks that he does not have this son anymore, but now his oldest, his son's come back to him. And they say, Dad, we've got to move the family to Egypt. Well, boys, I just sent you down there to buy grain. I didn't send you down there to buy property. Daddy, Joseph is alive. Now, I know there's a real happy ending to this story. But I I can't help but wonder, as I think about these 10 sons of, of, of Jacob, as they're going back from Egypt... With these wagons that Pharaoh sent to get the family and to bring them down to Egypt. I can't help but wonder, what was that conversation like? Alright boys, here's the deal. We've got to go back and explain to daddy. Who's really, really old. We're going to find out in just a couple of verses. He's 130 at this point. We've got to go back and explain to daddy that Joseph is still alive. And he's going to ask us. How is he still alive? You brought me his robe. So do we lie to him again? Say, well, maybe maybe he escaped and was made well. Well, if we do that, Joseph's going to tell dad the truth. I'm down here because they sold me. So do we need to just go ahead and tell daddy? Sorry about the big lie we told you about 30 years ago about Joseph. We actually were responsible for him disappearing. We sold him that's not a comfortable conversation to have now is it we've got a lot of kids in the room let me just go ahead and tell you right now it's better to tell the truth the first time because whether it's 30 minutes or 30 years it's going to come back and they're going to find out all right 30 years later we got to tell daddy what happened See, we don't want to miss that detail because here is, Joseph, here is Jacob in his old age. Here is Israel who has already confessed to his sons that he's been grieved of heart because one son is already gone and had to take Benjamin. Simeon was left in prison and all of these things. And he's like, I just can't do this. And now they've got to come back and say, Daddy, we lied to you. Joseph's still alive. He's having us move to Egypt. It makes sense when we get to chapter forty six, verse one where Israel is called by God to go back to or to go down to Egypt. And it makes sense when he comes to Beersheba and offers a sacrifice. He's just received some pretty heavy news. What do you do with that? It's rightfully thinking here that Jacob, Israel himself, is probably a bit confused about what is up and what is down. For the last 30 years, he's thought his son was dead. For the last three years, he's been sending convoys of sons to Egypt to buy grain and having some left in prison and some left. And when they all come back, they say, Joseph's still alive and he's the ruler in Egypt. What is up and what is down? So he goes to God and he goes to God and God says, do not be afraid, Jacob. Do not be afraid to take your family there. Look at the words he used. I love this. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I love that God often, in our most difficult times, reminds us of his most solemn promise that he loves us, that he is caring for us, that he is watching out for us. That's what the cross does. The cross stands as our continued reminder of the love of God, of the protection of God, of the hand of God in our lives. It is his continued promise that we could walk by faith in him. And so what does Israel do? He gets up and he moves. There, it says there that he arose from Beersheba. And the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones with their wives and their wagons and the pharaohs which in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. It says there in verse 27, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. This wasn't just a little small jaunt down the road. This was 70 people and all of the livestock, everything moving. And then we pick up in verse 28. It says in verse 28 that. Israel sends Judah before him to go to Joseph to point the way before him to Goshen. When they came to the land of Goshen, Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a long time. This moment when Israel meets his son Joseph. I mean, I can't can't help but imagine as a father, you haven't seen your son since he was probably a late teenager. And now he's a grown man. You don't know what's going on in his life the last 30 years. You don't know, you don't know if people have been good to him. You don't know all, everything that's happened to him. But what you do know is now he's the regent. He's second in command, only beneath Pharaoh. And here he is. He's right in front of you. Just the emotion that, that's captured there the lost son is now in front of him and all of the glory of the splendor of the king of, of, of Egypt is displayed upon him and around him and Israel is able to just wrap his arms around his boy once again I've probably shared with you before when I was new to being a dad, and I'm still trying to figure this whole dad thing, eight years in, I'm still trying to figure this thing out. Um, they're still alive, so that's going good. Um, Braden was a little over a year old, and I had to be in Texas for, for school for two weeks. It was the longest I'd been away from, from the little guy. Um, I, I think I'd been away for like two or three days, but um, I was gone for two weeks. And Christy brought him up to the airport in Greenville to pick me up. And Braden was fourteen months old at the time, and and the Greenville Airport is small. I mean, I, I mean, the Greenville Airport could fit like in this building. I mean, it, it's not a big, it's not a big airport at all. And you got on the second level. And where all the, you get off the plane and come down the second level and you come down the escalators down to where all the ticketing desks and the, I mean, it's small enough that the ticketing desk and the baggage pickup are like side by side. I mean, it's, I mean, it's like you buy your ticket here, you pick up your luggage there. It's, it's, it's that small. And there's one set of escalators in the middle and we're coming down and I see Christy down there with, with Brayden. He's got the stroller. And I mean Brayden's 14 months old, a little tiny guy and everything. And I, and I'm coming down the coming down the escalator, and when he sees me, I didn't get to hug or kiss my wife right then because he latched onto me. And like he had his face smushed up against mine like this. And he had this look on his face, just this, I don't know if I should be excited. I don't know if I should be scared. I'm not sure what's going on because everything in his world shifted for those two weeks because daddy was gone, but now daddy's back. You had 30 years or more to that. And here's a father and a son. They're reunited. They're, they're, they're there. Israel and Joseph, he thought his son was dead. And it says that he wept on his neck for a long time. Joseph said to his brothers in his father's household, I'm going to go tell Pharaoh um, and say to him, my brothers in my father's household who were in Canaan who have come to me, uh, These men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have found their flocks and their herds, all they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been both keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen. Israel sees his son Joseph and this reunion pulls him in and gives him a place to, to live. And then chapter 47 just shows how God's hand is in all of it as he uses Pharaoh to bless Israel, as he uses Pharaoh to bless Joseph's family. It says there, Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father, my brothers, all their livestock and their herds, all that they have have been come to the land of Canaan. Behold, they are now in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, What is your occupation? And they answered Pharaoh, saying, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants. Flocks or the famine, has, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father, listen to this, settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. And let them live in the land of Goshen. For if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Verse 12. So Joseph provided for his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. But there was no food in the rest of the land. You see what God does here? God tells Israel, go. Go to Egypt. I'm going to bless you. And and, and Israel gets up and goes. And he is given, his family is given the best that Egypt had to offer. You know, I want you to just think, just for a moment. When when people, when when people like show up at your house unannounced and you're not really happy about it, how often do we just roll out the best that we have to offer for them? It's like, ah, I mean, we got bottled water. I mean, I guess I could make you some tea maybe if you want to, but we don't have any food in the pantry. So uh, if you're hungry, uh, there's, a get, there's a grocery store right over there. Yeah, that's that's kind of how we approach you, right? How often do we roll out the best? See, that's what God does. He's rolled out the best. He's gone before Israel to prepare the way. Because what we find throughout the book of Genesis and what we find throughout the story of Abraham and Isaac, of Jacob and Joseph, is that God's promise to be with his people compels obedience to his purpose. God's promise to us is the the platform on which we stand, the springboard into obedience to what he has purposed, what he has desired. When God tells us to get up and go, the, the the hesitation is always do I have enough time? Do I have enough money? Can I do that? Can I trust that? See, when we look at it this way, that God says, I'm with you. I'm walking with you. I am standing with you. Notice what he says to, to Jacob go and I will go down with you and I will bring you up again. This is a huge promise. This is a major promise. God's promise to be with his people compels obedience to his purpose. Because God's that big of a God. God is that big of a God that he can see to the details that we want to use as roadblocks, that we want to... Say for why we can't or why we shouldn't or, or why we better hold back. So just a couple of quick, you've got three lists in your bullets. And I'm going to give you a fourth one, man. You're going to get your money's worth this morning. I've got a fourth connection point there at the end that God laid on my heart as I was reading back over uh, this passage this morning. Um, and so let's start here. Let me start. I just, just want to remind you of something because it comes out of God's promise God is with me right where I am. Right where you are, God has not left you. God has not forsaken you. God is with you, especially if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have the. And let me just break down what I mean by that. Not that you're in church, not that you own a Bible, not that you put money in the offering plate, that you have said, you know what, I am a sinner. In Christ Jesus is the only way I can be forgiven, the only means by which I can have redemption, be made new, and have a relationship with God. That is it. That is putting you in Christ. When the New Testament talks about being in Christ, that's what it means. You've said, I can't do it my way. I'm turning from sin and following Jesus. It doesn't mean you raised your hand at an invitation or a crusade or evangelistic thing. It doesn't mean that you sent your money to that guy on TV that one time because he said, you send your $58.16 to me and you'll have this problem. No, no, it's that you said, I'm giving it to Jesus. God's with you right where you are. Even when it looks like everything in life is falling apart, even when everything's confused. See, notice with me here that that's where Jacob is. That's where Israel is. We start this passage and Israel's just gotten word that his sons are a bunch of filthy liars. They told their father one of the most grievous lies they could have told him. Your son is dead when really they had sold him. And now they're coming back and saying your son is alive and he rules over Egypt. We've got to go there. Nothing makes sense. And Jacob had to ask, okay, God, where are you in this? God is with you right where you are. He sees you right where you are. He hasn't left. Or the way Paul, the way Paul describes it over in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, Paul is speaking to a bunch of thinkers. Um, a a bunch of men that just sit around and talk about the latest uh, trends and philosophies and thoughts and everything so um, basically the the, the lazy tail gossip men is what he was talking to Um, and uh, basically, he went on to a Twitter forum or a chat room as it used to be back in the days. He used to go to chat rooms online, but now he's, now he's posting a Twitter thread. And so he goes on there and he's talking to these people at Mars Hill. He says, look, you're a religious people. You've got the statue to an unknown God and you don't want to offend any of them. I, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. I'll put a name and a face on him so you'll know who he is. But he says this. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. For he himself made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the boundaries and the appointed times of their habitation. Listen to this. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. That might be where you are. You ever play pin the tail on the donkey? You're blindfolded. You're given a sharp object. You're spun around and said, go stick it to something. Kids around you, beware because this person is blindfolded feeling for a place to stick something sharp. Now we use tape, right? Because we figured out this thumbtack was a bad idea. You're blindfolded and disoriented and you're trying to feel your way. That's what Paul's describing here. That's what Paul is describing, that you're just kind of groping in the dark, hoping to grasp onto something. And maybe in your walk with Christ, you have gotten to the point where it feels like you've been blindfolded, spun around, and said, just reach for it. God is near that you might find him, even if it feels that you're groping in the dark. God is with you where you are, He's with me where I am. That's His promise. His promise compels obedience. But because God is with you where you are, that means that God will also be with you where he sends you. He's going to be with you. Everybody that went to Baltimore, God was already there working before we showed up. And we just got to see what God was already doing and be part of what he was doing. See, it's it's not like... When I was a kid, I always wanted to play baseball. If you come to my house and spend any time at my house now, you're going to find something out really, really quick about my oldest son. He does not like to be in the room with somebody and not be throwing a ball or object with them. Just doesn't. He doesn't like to be in the yard with somebody and not be throwing a ball. Or, and I know where he gets it from. That's the way I was. Every Sunday, Dad, let's go throw the baseball. Let's go throw the baseball. Let's go throw the baseball. And, and it never failed every Sunday. And, and I get it. Now that I'm a dad, I get it. You, you, man, you want Sunday? You want the Baptist hour on Sunday afternoon. You want to get back there, kick it back and sleep for a little bit, get some rest. on what I get Sabbath. It's a day of rest, right? So my dad would always said, well, go on out there and I'll be out there in a little bit. More often than not, He didn't come, not because he was a negligent dad, but because I was impatient. That's not what God does to us. Hey, you go out there and start serving and I'll show up later. See, when God calls us to do something, he is with us where he sends us through the process of sending us and where we are going now. So as we step out into Fairburn, guess what? God's already with us there. As we venture back into Baltimore in the future, he's with us there. Wherever God calls us, wherever he sends us, notice with me, Joseph's already there and demonstrating the work of God through what he has administered in Egypt and the fact that there was actually grain to be had. God's already there. Jacob, do not fear. Don't be afraid to go down there. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to do something great. You're going to be a great nation. That promise that I made to your grandfather Abraham, that promise that I made way back before them, all the way back to Adam and Eve, that I would send one, I haven't forgotten that promise. God's promise to be with us compels our obedience to his purpose. See, what ends up happening is we see Jacob, Israel, given an opportunity to obey. See, obedience is faith in action, right? O- obedience is saying, okay, I'm gonna take God's word for what he says it is, and I'm gonna act upon it. I'm not gonna say, oh yeah, God, that's really good, I believe you, and then just keep on continuing about my business. No, obedience, obedience to God is an act of faith That opens the door to his blessings. Too many of us want the blessing and not the obedience. Too many of us want it just to shower down on us. Man, make it rain. Man, we want Jesus to show up, throwing the Benjamins out there, making it rain on our lives and everything without obeying what he's called us to do. Without being the people that he's called us to be. See, notice with me that Jacob Israel and all of his family receives quite a blessing. Pharaoh says to him, the land of Egypt chapter 47 verse 6, is at your disposal Joseph, settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. The best. That is a huge statement. Because this was God's specific family that he was going to use to deliver his Messiah so that we could know hope, peace, joy, forgiveness, reconciliation, and who God is. It would not have happened this way if Israel had said, you know what? I think we're better in the land of Canaan. You know what? It doesn't work that way for us either. God tells us to tithe. God tells us to fellowship with one another. God tells us to to serve him with gladness. God tells us to, to, to be honest. God tells us, and all of these things, we want his blessing, but we don't want to live in accordance with who he is. Obedience is an act of faith that says, God, I'm not in control, I can't handle it all, but you do, you can and because of who you are god i'm going to choose today to obey you and the blessing might not be what you expect it to be can i be real with you for just a second i honestly honestly i did not know going to baltimore that my the biggest blessing that i was going to receive in the entire trip. I, I can tell you a lot of blessings. I can tell you a, lo- a lot of things that happened this week, all the way down to uh, um, uh, my kids being upset that it's going to be another year before they get to go back and serve and be part of it. I mean, that, that's a huge blessing as a dad. The, the, the biggest blessing that, for, for me personally, was to be able to listen to a man tell me about the struggle of his marriage and how things seemed to be falling apart and the heartbreak and, and standing there in a park and just pray with him and him say, I want you to know how much it means to me that you would pray and you would be here in Baltimore right now. No, nothing else. Yeah, we talked to kids about the gospel. We talked to people and it was huge. But, but for me, had I not asked men and women around me, it wasn't, this wasn't my decision, asked men and women around me to pray about where God would send us and through our missions and evangelism committees, settle on Baltimore and through, through, through wisdom and talking over with Randy as we saw over and talking with, with, with our evangelism missions team. Settling on these two church planners. If we had not been obedient, then these, these blessings would have been missed. And, and to hear two church planners say, you know, you, you've, you've created space where we can operate See, this isn't about Baltimore. It's about what we do in obedience to who God is. Because his promise compels our obedience. Our obedience is saying, I believe you, God. And I'm not just going to put words to it. I'm going to put action to it because you, Lord, are the only one that can do something about this. But then I started reading the last part of this chapter. See, at the end of the chapter, chapter 47, it's kind of troubling because conditions in Egypt continue to get worse. I'm not going to read all the verses for you. I'm going to just tell you what happens. Conditions continue to get worse. The people run out of money. They've been buying their grain from Egypt so they can live. Well, they're out of money, so they give all their livestock. Now Egypt owns all their livestock. And they give their land because they're out of livestock and Egypt owns all their land. And then they're out of land, they're out of livestock, they're out of money. So they have to sell themselves to Egypt to survive. In a culturally sensitive world, that sounds a whole lot like I mean, some of you will say, oh, that's socialism or that's human trafficking. That's a form of slavery. And here we go. Joseph says, all right, you've sold yourselves. We own you now. So here's some seed. 20% of it comes back to Pharaoh. That's too high of a tax. All of those things that we could impress upon there that aren't there. And I struggled with these verses of, man, how do I communicate this? And, and here's, here, here's what I'm left with. It's not going to be on the screen. But I'm going to give it to you and I'll repeat it if you need me to. It probably will. Joseph is one man who is now the benevolent, he is the, now the benevolent giver of life to an entire nation and to his father's family. And these people had nothing. Absolutely hopeless. And it was in their hopelessness that they were able to now find a source of hope. Which leads me to say this, that you and I must f- come to the end of ourselves In order to fully receive all that God has to offer. And only then will we view our lives in terms of sacrificial service. Too often we come to the cross feeling entitled. Well God I've done this. And I have this. And I'm able to be used for this. So so Lord, just bless me a little more. We come to the cross with what we've done in spite, instead of exactly what He has done. We must come to the end of ourselves and see that we have nothing to offer. There is nothing in our ability, nothing in our power, nothing that we have to give, but everything that we can gain. And it's only then that we will view our lives in terms of sacrificial service to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone can remove all of our hopelessness, all of our frustration, all of, all of the brokenness and give us something beautiful in return. And it's only then that we'll say, you know what, I get to serve God. I get to go to church. I get to go on a mission trip. I get to be part of music camp. I get to help with VBS. I get to. And not I have to. Because we're left with nothing. Because we came with nothing. And God gave us everything.